Welcome to Impact Drivers, a podcast about how entrepreneurs can build businesses that create a better world. I'm your host, Jen Helms. Welcome to the show. Funding innovative businesses solving our biggest problems can be challenging. Many venture capitalists don't have the appetite for the complex products and services that can't provide the quick returns they are looking for. Our guest today, Stonely Blue, decided to start a fund specifically focused on investing in the entrepreneurs building for the massive problem of climate change with solutions that upgrade cities. Their portfolio includes companies that optimize construction processes, build resilience into our food systems, accelerate clean energy production, and tackle urban transportation issues. The Urban Us strategy continues to evolve as they hone in on the investments that can make the biggest impact. Hi, Stonely. Thank you for joining me on Impact Drivers today. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. To begin, when did you decide to create Urban Us, and what issue were you trying to solve in the startup funding landscape? So I, Urban Us was started in late 2013. It was after a period of, of time where I, was, I had sold my last software company and was exploring, like many do after somewhat of, uh, of an exit or uh, indication that you might actually um, be able to build something of value. I wanted to not just build financial value, I also wanted to solve a problem that mattered. Uh, and for a period, I explored what to potentially build next, and that mainly fo- narrowed down into urban systems and climate change related issues. Uh, I was lucky enough to meet uh, my now co-founder Sean Abramson, who was also thinking about what he would build next from a similar lens. He came from more of an investing background, and one of the first things I learned in my experimentations around what to build next was that building a startup that focused in on urban systems or climate change was really hard for all of the same reasons that building any startup is hard, but also because the stakeholders are different, the financing is harder, um, or at least more dynamic. And so when we started Urban Us, we really wanted to solve that challenge of the lack of resources and really even knowledge sharing for founders who wanted to build these types of companies. Um, And so we talk all the time about our thesis being climate change driven with an urban systems lens. But the real underlying pieces was that we felt uh, a lot of very talented people would also recognize the opportunity, would want to build solutions in the space and wouldn't find the resources or the help that they need. So we started Urban Us to close that gap. Great. That makes a lot of sense. But I think what would be great just to get more context about what Urban Us is doing is to hear more about your portfolio. It's full of interesting companies. So what are some of the portfolio companies you've invested in that you believe are seeing the most success and you're most excited about? I mean, it depends on how you define success, I suppose. Uh, There are companies who have raised a lot of money, have very high valuations and are expanding, such as Bowery Farms, which they're, they're now expanding distribution nationally. They're a vertical farm platform. They're backed by uh, uh, Google Ventures, GGV, General Catalyst, and and Tamarisic, the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund. And we were seed investors when Irving, who had a relationship with Sean at his previous startup, approached us about this idea of creating a more resilient food system. 
you know, it was a sort of, you might call it a moonshot, right? Rethinking mm -hmm. the to have production closer to where it's consumed and really building the, the, a modern farm from the ground up to be indoors and all of the tech learning that would have to be done to figure out how to optimize for resource management and output from that. And, and you know, it's not the traditional B2B enterprise SaaS that you would think would be easy to fund, but it's been really great to see that the Bowery team has done a great job of bringing in partners. They're on their third farm now. They're a, a loved brand and loved food item, frankly. Um, and so success on on those metrics, um, Bowery probably tops out because they've built a successful product and they've gotten a lot of funding. From mm -hmm. a revenue perspective, I can't go into details, but probably our most profitable and revenue generating uh, company is uh, is Future Motion. They've they've built a uh, a series of one wheeled electric boards. Also, uh, as a success metric, built a brand that is just loved by millions. It's a lifestyle now. Uh, their brand and the and and their boards you can find all sort of really creative and interesting content uh, with their board. And now even um, there's some industry uses for their one wheel board. And so you know from a revenue perspective and from a just building something that's non-intuitive, yet another electric board, but in, in a way that's actually been able to stand out as unique and bring a lot of joy and adventure into people's lives, I'd say uh, Future Motion is, is another very high success point. Again, not, not the easiest thing to get funded because it's hardware, it's consumer, and you know, frankly, they've been able to build a huge business with very little venture funding. And then there are, there's a, there are a bunch of earlier companies we, we've invested in over 70 companies now over these last seven years. Oh, so there are wow. a, bunch of, a bunch of really uh, fast growing earlier companies, but I'll, I'll stop at those two. So 70 companies, I'm sure, and seven years now, right? So I'm sure your investing philosophy has changed over time. What were your key tenets when you started out and how has that changed? Yeah, I think on day one, the, the key tenant that we... The key assumption that we, the, well, let's just say the first assumption that we immediately were able to prove wrong um, was that to build solutions that touched on urban systems and tried to tackle climate change, we would need to work very closely with mayor's offices and policymakers. And what we realized very quickly was that there are actually a ton of consumer facing and business facing solutions that don't have to touch at all uh, mayor's offices or policy. And so they have less restrictions on scale and can be funded in a traditional venture model. And then again, speaking to like dozen, um, uh, multiple dozens of companies that I'm still very excited about that are earlier in our portfolio, companies like uh, Cove Tool recently, we, we invested in them really a year or so ago at their seed round, recently raised their uh, Series A. And they're a, they're a software platform that architects and building developers use to design buildings that are better for the environment and better for public health. And so those are goals that you'll see on any mayor's priority list, improving public mm -hmm. health, lowering the emissions of the city. But here is a startup that's taking the traditional B2B enterprise SaaS approach to actually solving that problem. So this, was an, this is an example of a positive sort of assumption that got killed. On the other side, it's still, I would consider positive. We, we have invested in many, many non-traditional companies that are hardware-centric or tech-driven services and one of the things we suspected it, it would be slightly harder to fund those companies in the traditional venture model. That turned out to be somewhat true. And, um, but the opportunity that we have been able to service from that is 
that there are other types of funding that can be tapped into. That's evolved for us. When we first started, we looked a lot at what, how to source, connect companies to grant type of funding. But since then, in addition to, to grant funding, which is great when you can get it in its low overhead, um, we've also started looking at how to access or create earlier stage credit financial sources for companies. And we've gone as far as, uh, in addition to our venture fund, now have having built a credit fund will launch later this year. We've, we've got a really great team that we've built around the credit fund strategy, Mark Paris and Steve Krieger. And we've, we're really, we've got a great pipeline, including some of our portfolio companies, but even non-venture portfolio companies that we really feel like we're going to make a catalytic uh, impact on the ecosystem of being able to go early and fund some of these companies in very creative ways. So that's been a, a focus is just to find, find more creative ways to help these companies you're investing in get additional investment. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not investment for the sake of investment. There's just some great solutions that, I mean, every case have a lot of strong demand, but, you know, it costs money to cost more money to move atoms versus bits. And so we're always trying to close that gap, right? The solutions that not only are uh, do people want, but the frankly, frankly, the planet needs. We've narrowed down that, that you know, finance is, is one of the biggest gaps. Obviously, another very large gap is that the people who need and might want it don't always know about the solution. And so distribution, i.e. marketing and sales has also been a focal point of ours. And for that, we've built as another pillar of our platform an accelerator in partnership with BMW Mini that really focuses in on that marketing and sales and and launching a successful product side of solving or uh, accelerating the ecosystem. Okay, yeah. So the accelerator, that's something you launched uh, later on in your journey. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. we, um, we started uh, working with BMW Mini on the accelerator in uh, really in earnest in late 2016, uh, early 2017. So it's been three, four years on that front. We've had at this point somewhere north of uh, 30 companies go through the accelerator program and they're, they're part of the portfolio. Um, we just get to meet them earlier, uh, give them a sort of a jump start first check, get to know them, get help them actually launch a successful product and double down on the on the teams that we want to and that want to continue to work very closely with us. Great. Yeah. And so this is to work with companies a little earlier on than you might be able to invest right. in them otherwise. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, when again, when you're starting a company in this space, uh, or really in any real issue, any real solution space, you, you, you sort of not only need to get past the traditional, how do you source an idea and, and build a product, but there are a few other common challenges that come with such, such as designing for manufacturing and, you know, mm-hmm. running pilot projects or, or what have you. And so, you know, we, we felt that to, to be good shepherds of our LP investor dollars, we not only needed to make early investments, but we needed to make sure that some of the common pitfalls and failure points could be avoided. And as a result, I'd say nine, I, 90% of our portfolio is default alive, as they say. Uh, we've really only had less than a handful out of 70 plus companies, less than a handful of companies that haven't worked out. Oh, that's a great success rate. So, well, speaking of the word success, um, how, do you, how do you measure your success as an investor uh, since you are driven by more than returns by having this desire to solve this bigger world problem with your approach? How, how do you think about success? Yeah, I mean, I have to admit returns very much matter because they are a leading indicator of something working commercially. 
and uh, and and being a place that more investments should be made, and, and and it should be in implicit that more investments should be made in mitigating climate change and improving life in cities. But you know, evident financial the financial world needs evidence, right? And, mm-hmm. and frankly, some of the best founders may not be motivated by mission; they may be purely motivated by the opportunity to build the next great big company. And I think that that's fine. One of the core philosophies that I have around mission-driven work is that not everybody has to be necessarily driven by the mission to do the work. And so I do think that returns matter. And that is something with three exits now, something that we're proud to start, you know, being able to show publicly and to our LPs. And then I guess not second, but in parallel with that, you know, being able to really start measuring the impacts that that we that we're having for now, mo- most of them are anecdotal. There's some causality analysis and and so forth that you know it's still I think premature to really do smiles on faces is and electric vehicle miles driven versus emission miles driven are, are probably a metric if we could really pin down on one wheel. We would love to be able to talk about and showcase. But in in the interim term, we hope to be able to get to that point where we can really do thorough impact uh, analyses and, and, and reports, that's sort of the next big goal we have as a platform is to be able to start really being able to showcase that. So that, that's the midterm goal. And then long term, obviously, we're trying to tackle a, a very serious challenge that we face as a species. Um, so, you know, frankly, long term success is putting ourselves out of business, um, is mm-hmm. to actually have successful companies that have propagated globally and have helped tackle and mitigate climate change. And and we can look to the next big challenge that we feel we're um, well positioned to help uh, solve. So in in that work, how do you think we can get more investment funds focused on these types of problems? It seems like we need more companies thinking this way, that there is this business opportunity, but that it also can help us solve these world problems what what are the barriers to that happening and how can we see more movement there? Um, I mean, frankly, the biggest barrier is creativity. You know, I think that the motivation is actually there now, right? I mean, I think with, in part, you know, the reality of climate change actually materializing um, um, with warmer and warmer years, more and more intense environmental disaster, natural disasters and, and, and weird seasons, folks are starting to see the writing on the wall and so, you know, I'd say over the last, um, you know, 18, 24 months, we've seen a resurgence of interest in from the broader finance and, and startup ecosystem uh, in uh, uh, environmental or climate change oriented solutions. And, in, and broadly, globally, we're seeing a, a, a huge surge in, in ESG focused investing and ESG focused um, re, re um, uh, sort of gearing of, of, uh, of companies. And so the motivation is is there, and and you could you could argue even that the pandemic, uh, the the COVID nineteen global pandemic, and uh, the fire season again, all of these things that are showing us that you know it's not just theoretical. Systematic risk is real. We're facing the consequences of not being prepared, and frankly, the consequences, um, the the bill on the consequences rack up into the trillions. And so the investment opportunity is uh, is fairly obvious now. And then secondly, um, the, the miracles aren't as um, necessarily uh, scientific breakthrough as most people assume. I think there's obviously always room for a scientific breakthrough like fusion energy um, or what have you. But there is a lot of great technology out there that really just needs more creative ways to get out into the world. 
And so that's why we, we love founders. That's why we love startups is because they're, they're that engine of creativity for putting two nascent solutions together and figuring out a way to get them in front of people and get the economy aligned with propagating the solution in the world. So, um, I mean, the only bottleneck that I see is, you know, we just need more founders building solutions, building, mm. you know, coming up with creative ideas and testing those ideas. Um, there's never too many of those, right? I think at this point, there's probably too many, too many venture capitalists in the world um, mm. hoping to find great founders. Um, the, the glut really is, uh, is that we need more founders building solutions. And that's my, like the highlight of my day is hearing a brand new idea and more so someone who's tested that idea and has early evidence that it might just work. And I mean, I, I, can't, I can't imagine anything I'd get more excited about. So it sounds like your, your, your premise is that the, there are enough solutions out there, technological solutions. So it's less about needing to do the research and development that can be expensive and time consuming and more about getting the products out there. I just, I'm not sure if I heard that. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. Again, there's, there's like, there's, in, in, there's what we know of the world and the universe, and what we've been able to build with that till till now. We've only been around um, for for a finite period of time, and then there's like the vastness of how much more we might learn and what else we might uncover, unlock. And so I'm, I'm never I'm never going to be uh, to discount the value of research. The research we do today will fuel the innovations that we'll be able to unlock in in twenty, fifty, a hundred years. But there's also a lot of research that is still on the shelf. There's a lot of um, uh, nascent types of technology that haven't yet married each other to create new consumable solutions. And so entrepreneurs uh, and founders are where the rubber uh, hits the road. And so I, what, I, what I'm suggesting is that there's, there's a lot of untapped opportunities still. And I mean, one good example is the construction industry, which is still in its early stages of truly adopting technology. I mean, there there are um, industry after industry where they are uh, where you're 50, sometimes even 100 years behind on adopting the technologies that are available today, and that's you know it's just scratching the surface. Okay, and then but in the in the cases where where it still is really expensive to to get that product built, that new technology built and and off the R and D shelf and and into the world. In those cases, do you think that the venture capital is there for those founders, or is it possible that more support for those founders might be needed financially than, than what's out there? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that, well, one, there, there are some new models or at least some new brand, brands of venture capital funds that are structuring their funds to be able to withstand longer hold periods, hmm. um, you know, in the uh, 15 to 20 year range in some cases. And that, that's welcomed uh, innovation around the finance modeling. You need that risk capital that is also patient. Certainly not as much of that as is necessary to marry venture with true R&D, really expensive to get to market things. And so there's a gap to be filled, which is why we um, now have a credit fund, uh, an Urban Us credit fund, is to try to close that gap, which really for, for us, the gap we're trying to close is the implementation gap where the thing is built, but it's very expensive to sort of get it out into the world, but the customer is on the other end waiting for it. That's the gap we're solving. The much earlier R&D gap, you know, traditionally that, that has been solved by, frankly, government funding, corporate R&D. And I do believe that, that that hasn't scaled to the level of where it should be 
for you know where technology has advanced and where it needs to continue to advance further. I don't know if venture capital is the, necessarily the model for that. There's certainly a long-term incentive. I'd say if you imagine yourself as a, a, a thousand-year venture firm, some portion of your capital should be going into that R&D, which will feed the, the innovations that will be your deal flow in 20 years. But you know, for the most part, venture capital is subsidized by the government R&D investments that were made back in the 60s and 70s. And you think that flows through to, to climate change R&D or? Yeah, I mean, the unfortunate tragedy there is that it's that's behind. That's well behind the curve. It's lacking and right. uh, you know, we're, we're playing catch up. So there is a need for a new model. When, it, when that model uh, that truly works surfaces, it, won't, it probably won't look like venture capital. It, it may look more like bringing things to the public sooner to be publicly funded. Uh, it may look like very creative alternate finance um, that's based on performance and long-term sort of appreciation or cash flow results. Um, but, you know, the traditional venture model is, is really based on a short time frame of multiplying value on, on a very small success rate. So it, it may evolve, but it may also be just called something else by the time it evolves. Right. And it does sound like ideally there would be some role of government and and helping with R&D when we're facing an existential crisis like this. Yeah, I mean it's um it's sort of the the, the role of government is uh uh some would argue is to protect its people so to speak and the traditional way of thinking of that is is very limited to sort of you know war and territories but you know we're facing not I wouldn't call a war but certainly a struggle with our own um sort of impacts on our environment and the the negative feedback loop of that. And so, you know, we're going to face one of the biggest challenges we've ever faced as a society. Um, And there'll be no sort of war front. It'll just be uh, the front will be everywhere. And so to truly protect ourselves, we need to be making the investment to to fight back. And, you know, it's not this traditional type of you know, military spending, as you would, as you mm-hmm. might call it, it's, it's, it's much more uh, future thinking, you're, you know, the, the, the enemy is, you could argue more invisible, it, it, you know, war and military may also be too violent of terms to, to frame it. But it's just as serious, if not even more serious. I mean, we're, you know, we're talking about things that will dramatically impact global populations, economies, borders, um, just as serious a threat as any as any actual sort of military enemy. So I do think that there's a huge role for military spending to be specifically military spending to be redirected towards making sure we uh, are, are confronting this challenge together and with as much might and investment as we can. Okay, so so to shift gears a little bit, or maybe maybe it is all connected, but I, I think an area that would be interesting to hear about is your view on the importance of collaboration and addressing big problems. This is something I, I know you've talked about before. So what is unique about your approach to collaboration and why is collaboration important to addressing these big problems? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, uh, I just touched on it, which is like, I'm not necessarily some sort of super pro-military person. Um, uh, Obviously, I have reverence and appreciation for our military. But my point is, even the folks who don't think that they are playing a role in uh, or have a role to play in a problem space, uh, you know, it's important to start bring, bridging those gaps and, and recognizing the necessary collaboration between different types of stakeholders. And so from one extreme, which is the biggest climate activists should be the militaries to the other extreme, which is 
founders should be seeking, you know, mission driven team members. Um, I think there's a lot of like gradient um, and rainbow between that where, you know, you're working with people who have different motivations, different worldviews. Um, and ultimately, the magic is in, you know, threading that needle and finding the alignment, helping everyone realize that it's in everyone's incentive and everyone's interest to work on this thing to build this thing. And so I'm just a very big believer in getting really talented people together. And part of that also, by the way, means recognizing unconventional talent um, or recognizing that talent can come from unconventional places um, and, and giving folks a chance to really build things, uh, whatever their motivation is, but to build things that, that have, you know, that can create value, that, that can solve real problems. And so my, my, the first thing I try, to, I try to do when thinking about collaboration is how do I figure out what everyone else in the room uh, and, you know, the, the virtual room or the hypothetical room, what they want, what their interests are, and how do I get that aligned with the thing that needs to happen? I'm curious to tie this back, actually, to, to you talked earlier about how you started out with thinking that a lot of the mechanism for getting these companies out there would be through individual mayor's office or through individual local governments. I wonder if that's that's an area where, I mean, it seems like you've moved away from that, probably because everything is so siloed. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't ask you about that. But, you know, is there, is there room for us to figure out more collaboration there that could actually help expedite getting these innovations into market as well? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think that one of the things we, one of the reasons we picked Urban Systems as a lens is because, um, you know, a lot of the implementation, you know, when you get out of the policy sphere, a lot of the actual execution happens at the hyperlocal level. And, and, and that includes in, in, in granular detail, the individual decisions that we make as individuals. And, but it also includes sort of hyperlocal policies at the, at the city level. And so mayors do play, have played a very big role in implementing climate solutions. And frankly, uh, the C40 studies on, on the role that mayors and cities played in, are playing in, in facing and addressing climate change is part of the, one of the key pieces of tenets of research that fed our, our original thesis. And so they already play a role in the sense of like shaping local policies that supplement or even go further than uh, state policies around things like energy efficiency and public health and also in resilience. I mean, in some cases, it's because it's, un- again, it's unignorable at this point where, you know, you as a mayor, you have to start addressing sea level rise if you live on a coast, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a challenge. It's just unignorable at this point. Now, as far as collaboration, I mean, there there's still um, a lot of minefield uh, in, in sort of bridging the gap between, say, startups and mayor's offices. Um, uh, naturally, as a government entity, there's, there's bureaucracy, there's, there's sort of for example, if you want to sell to a city, there's procurement and there are challenges around scaling that. So uh, what mainly we've seen as the collaboration point that has had staying power is the signaling from mayors and from cities and even states at the policy level or even at the stated policy level, what the intentions are around goals, uh, industry goals. And then once those industry goals are set, such as zero emission buildings or EV fleets, once those industry goals are set, then actual enterprises and homeowners or, or residents can then say, well, what are the solutions that are out there that help me actually follow this policy or work towards this guideline? And that's the role that startups and innovators and, and founders play. Great. And so do you think that we might see more at the local level, 
those sets of policies being unified across different localities? Like are, are mayors starting to work together across the country on these sorts of things or? Yeah. I mean, Bloomberg, the Bloomberg um, foundation has done a lot of work trying to bridge those gaps. Um, again, C40 cities uh, there, there have been, there's a number, there are a number of collaboration efforts between cities globally to, to sort of help shape, and implement policy and, and, and even sort of mirror things like the, the, the Paris Agreement and, at the lo- and figure out how to implement the, those things at, at the local level. I mean, I'm trying to skirt around it, but the reality is that it helps to have some federal level guidance that is aligned mm-hmm. until, you know, it trickles down. But it also, again, it's unavoidable. It's trickling up. And, and you know, I think it's also eventually going to be unavoidable that we have to face the challenge from a unified front. What's happening, you know, it, it, I, I haven't seen evidence of how that ultimately works, partially because, you know, on a disappointing front, homelessness is a national challenge that crosses borders of cities. Homeless populations propagate between different different locales, and we haven't fit, found a unified front to address homelessness, right? And so even though right. it's a problem faced by mayors across the globe and 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 a homelessness challenge in one city can impact another city but we just i don't see a lot of evidence of that spurring the kind of collaboration you would expect and what we're going to start to see with climate change is migration from cities to from one city to another city for example or one region to another region and so you know um one region's prob back problem is now backyard is now encroaching on another regions and creating new challenges around population growth etc and so I, I do think that though that that's going to be a less ignorable challenge when we start seeing um, mass climate migration. So it'll be um, hopefully something we can preempt uh, with more collaboration between cities. I mean, I don't know what that model looks like, though. Yeah, but hopefully we'll get there. Okay, so could you share a bit about what you think are the most underrated technologies today? And what the technologies are that you think will have the biggest impact on the future, but not enough investors and companies are paying attention to those yet? Ooh, I don't know. I, I mean, I think I'm self-aware enough to know that I'm probably in that list of, uh, of people who aren't aware enough about the most interesting things uh, that, that, you know, haven't yet gone, seen this, the day of light or the light of day. Um, and that's the, that's the job, right, is to hopefully be able to catch a glimpse of those things uh, before they make it too far out into the world and to ch- try to be catalytic and helping get them out to the world. I mean, I think our portfolio speaks to what our current assessment of what the most interesting technologies that need to be propagated more are. And, and some of those, again, touch on software for modeling um, new ways to and, and more sustainable ways to build and operate things to um, uh, hardware and materials to uh, improve environments and improve our place in environments, you know, I do think that there are a lot of interesting things on the shelf on the, in the material space. You know, Metalmark is a portfolio company that's using a really innovative new approach to air filtration that's based on a materials breakthrough. But, you know, mm-hmm. in an area that we haven't invested in yet, I think there are a lot of interesting things, ha- things happening on the battery and solar space. I'm not saying that there's a lack of investment there, but, you know, there, there's certainly still, a, a, as I mentioned earlier, a gap in implementation and deployment that could probably still use more funding. So, I mean, I don't have a, 
you know, I'm not going to give you the a, an a, a line about AI or any of those other you know buzzwords, um, other than to say, you know, I think the most the, the most uh, honest thing a VC can tell you about what the future looks like is I don't know, and I hope I meet the founder who does know. Anything else that you'd like to share to any potential entrepreneurs listening um, before we close out our talk for the day? Yeah, um, I'd love to work with you. If you're building something that you're excited about, it's potential to improve the way we live, work, get around cities in particular uh, that has a positive impact on the environment or helps make us more resilient to climate change. I'd love to see what you've got and see if we can help you build it and get it out into the world. Um, our accelerator, which is a great entry point to working with us, is uh, is um, looking for new companies for the next cohort for another week or so here. But we really are are open to meeting and funding companies anytime. Um, and we'll be launching our credit fund soon. I'm uh, maybe premature and pre-announcing it, but we'd love yeah. to start talking to folks who are looking for that deployment capital as well. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Stonely. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Jen. Thanks for having me on. This has been a blast. Looking forward to chatting again. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Impact Drivers. Make sure to visit our website at impactdrivers.io where you can subscribe to the show. If you found value in today's episode, we would appreciate your rating on iTunes. Or if you could tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. I'm also available as a business coach. You can learn more about my services at lucentpathways.com. Join us next time for a chance to be inspired and learn from the entrepreneurs daring to build the hard businesses that create a better world.